as you know, Ecclesiastes is a sermon in print form. And in it, Solomon goes back to a theme he introduced previously, and that's the idea of death being the great equalizer he introduced in chapter 2 and has gone back to. But we don't like to think about death, but it's inevitable for all of us. Uh, Euripides, a, a Greek poet, wrote, Death is a debt that all mortals must pay. A sociologist by the name of Ernest Becker is said to have claimed that of all the things that move men, one of the principal ones is the terror of death. Comedian Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. It's been observed that those who treat death most lightly may be the ones who actually fear it the most. On the other side, Walt Warren Wearsby wisely says this, people will do almost anything but repent in order to escape the reality of death. They will get drunk, fight with their relatives, drive recklessly, spend large amounts of money on useless things, and plunge into one senseless pleasure after another. Genesis 3 tells us that death is a shared experience, and it gives us the why. It's because of the curse of sin. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says this, Therefore, thus, just as through one man sin entered into the world, being Adam, of course, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Sin and its resulting depravity qualifies us for physical and, by the way, eternal death. And this depravity is universal. All of us have been affected by it. And without Christ, that's where things will remain. We'll remain in our standing, condemned before God. No long life portion or cryogenic chamber is going to help anyone escape the result of the curse. We will all die. But that will not be the end. Hebrews 9.27 says, in, an, in as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. We all have a death appointment, but only God knows when it's scheduled. We saw in scripture that Asaph was struggling with the prosperity of the wicked and the difficulties that he was experiencing himself. He was envious of the proud and the prosperity of the wicked. They seemed to always be at ease. They seemed to be increasing in wealth. Life seemed to be going so well. For them, And the whole thing changed for Asaph in verse 17 of, of Psalm 73. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. His whole perspective changed. Last week we talked about the confusing situation of how the, the suffering of the righteous happens. And what appears on the surface as the blessing of the wicked. And this... This confusion persists in this life, but all of it will be made right in the future. Christians can confidently go about their lives fulfilling our calling here. The encouraging message for us today is if that you are living a life as one of God's own, you know Jesus as Savior. In other words, listen, your life is already approved. 
it's already approved. Rather than ignoring death, we face it with the confidence that death is not the end. Uh, My friend Bill Hickson, he's the pastor at Athens Bible Church, said in the devotional last week, Physical death is not the final chapter of the biography of any Christian. Physical death is not the the final chapter of the biography of any Christian. I thought that was a powerful thought. Because death is unavoidable, though, and life is unpredictable, we should enjoy our time here for as long as God has us here. On Wednesday nights, we've lately been talking about God's immutability. That means that he doesn't change. And because he doesn't change, our standing doesn't change either. When we come to Christ, when we're born again, when we're saved, our standing from that point on is in Christ. And we have God's perfect favor from that moment that we're born again. So in essence, it's not our lives that are approved. It's the life of Jesus that's approved. And we live, by the way, in his standing and in his righteousness. Now, in order to understand what an approved life is, Solomon has been shattering some of the ideas that people would use as substitutes of an approved life, whether that was living materialistically. I mean, you've been with me, most of you, for this whole time, so you remember how he's breaking down some of these substitutes, whether that's pleasure, living for pleasure like the Epicureans, whether it was humanistic, uh, in other words, that there is no depravity. We, that's, that comes through in our society with this idea, hey, we have this, or, or we can do this, right? You've, you got this. Humanists teach that we are masters of our own fate, captains of our own souls. We are indomitable, unconquerable, invincible. Uh, Swindoll, who, who wrote that about what humanists teach. And this was boldly on display as the people built the Tower of Babel right in Genesis chapter 11, um, very early on in our scripture. They did that to make a name for themselves, but God foiled their plans. They were trying to make a name for themselves, but some names should die, and some towers should come down. There's also fatalism. That is that that. We, we don't then resign ourselves to this life as if there's nothing that we need to do. You know, que sera, sera. God is sovereign, and then whatever will be, will be. No, God gives us many things that we're supposed to do. Fatalism must also be rejected as a lifestyle that is not approved by God. But there is a life that God has approved, and that's our topic for today. And so the title of today's message is The Approved Life. The Approved Life. We look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we'll cover the first nine verses of Ecclesiastes 9 this morning. Cover the rest of the chapter, Lord willing, next Sunday. Title of today's message is The Approved Life. If you follow along with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Solomon writes, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, 
for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. If you have ever read Ecclesiastes and looked at this verse and said, what in the world is Solomon talking about with this one? Hopefully we'll, we'll be able to shed some light on that together. A live dog is better than a dead lion. Verse 5. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing upon our time in the word one more time. Father, we need your help, Lord. Always we need your help. We don't um, claim perfect wisdom, Lord, because even as Ecclesiastes has already said, if we say that we know it all, we really don't. And we need your spirit to be our teacher. And so I ask that you would guide us today, Lord. If there's anything that I have in my notes to say that ought not to be said, I pray you would keep me from it. And on the other side, if there's anything that I need to say that's not in my notes, give me the liberty of your spirit to, to say it. God, I simply want to be your spokesman, and I also want to be one who's hearing your word and, and that the preaching of your word is changing my own heart, even as I ask that my dear brothers and sisters would change as well. Pray you would work in all of us, your godliness, your holiness. Christ-likeness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Solomon is coming to the end of his sermon. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be coming to the end of Ecclesiastes sometime towards the middle of March. He's coming to the end of his sermon, and as he comes to terms with the reality he wants us to face, he sometimes is repeating himself, as you might have uh, witnessed. As Eric Seip said, and as I listened to his sermon on this passage this week, he repeats himself like any good preacher will. And so we're going to hear some concepts that he's already introduced, and he'll give different layers of these things. It's going to sound familiar. But point number one from our message today is, in verse one, it is that God knows, but we don't. God knows, but we don't. Uh, the ESV Study Bible sees this passage with the theme, I think it's helpful for us, the theme of the unpredictability, let me start over, the unpredictability of life and the certainty of death. The unpredictability of life and the certainty of death. Uncertainty, man doesn't know if growth or decline awaits. Uncertainty, 
He doesn't know if sickness or health is coming or prosperity or adversity. But who does know? God does. Because our life is in his hands. And so Solomon says, I've taken all this to my heart and explain it. He's taking it. He's applying it to his heart. He's, He's committing it to his heart. As we would say, when we commit something to memory, it's like it becomes part of us. He's committed it to heart, and he's explaining it. I I explain it, or I I declare it. What is this that he's uh, concluding here? That righteous men, uh, this word righteous men just means just or lawful human beings, uh, mankind, the wise or the cunning, their deeds are in the hand of God. The works, the things which they do, are in the hand or, or in the power or the strength of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 3, it says this. Indeed, speaking of God, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives your words. The, the holy ones are in your hands. But not only is it that the righteous and the wise are in God's hands, but it's also true of the wicked and their deeds. Listen to what Job 12.10 says. In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So in Deuteronomy, what's emphasized is God's special care for his people over the righteous, but truly all are in his hands. As his people, we're under his protection and care as his children. But even when the righteous seem to be given up and abandoned to the mercy or lack thereof of their enemies, God is still holding them. Nothing is by chance. It's by God's sovereign power and will. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the birds falling from the sky. Not a bird falls out of the, of the sky that's outside of his sovereignty. And we can have comfort knowing that our deeds are in the hand of the one who has perfect recall and never gets it wrong. Probably almost every one of us have had an experience where we uh, do something good at work, something uh, that helps the company and is advantageous and never gets recognized or it gets forgotten very quickly. Well, God will not let one thing pass away. He'll reward us for what we do. When we are judged by God, we will be judged righteously with no injustice or favoritism, either in our punishments or rewards. He will judge us righteously. A man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Uh, the word hatred is uh, the word uh, misos in Greek. It's, you get misogyny uh, from that word. It's, it's a hatred, but in the Hebrew, it's an intensified. It's exceeding hatred. We cannot know the full picture of who God is and what he's doing because his mysteries defy human explanation. It's because we're finite, he's infinite. And it's one of the limitations that he's given us so that we know that we are not God. Because so much of our problem is we want to be God of our lives. And he brings things into our lives to help us realize that there is a God and we're not him. 
So he, Solomon continues, he says, anything awaits him. Uh, the idea of awaits has the idea of um, literally before their face or countenance. Um, in, in our language today, we would say that, that we don't know what we're going to face. That's the same idea. Anything awaits us. And this may refer to nobody being able to, to tell God, tell if God's love or hatred is being poured out by external circumstances. That's because as we've gone over and over again, outward good is not an indication of God's approval, nor are difficult circumstances a sign of God's hatred or disfavor. And this has been true in the past, and it's going to continue to be true today. Don't think it's strange when some love you and some hate you. I know it's hard to imagine that somebody wouldn't love you. Don't think it's strange. When you go through seasons of adversity and of prosperity, don't think it's strange. Matthew Henry makes it a point to balance this, to remind us that, that this does not blur the lines between moral good and moral evil. It's not, um, it's not that then because anything awaits us, then anything goes. That's not what we should be concluding. We should live up or, or live it up or not care about what, you know, whether we're doing good or, or resisting evil, we should care about those things. But if prosperity was a sign of God's blessing and adversity was a sign of God's displeasure, then it might be reasonable to take offense when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. If trials were a sign of displeasure and, and that God is, let's say, angry with you if you're experiencing suffering, what about the suffering that Jesus experienced? Because I never heard Jesus say in the garden, well, I guess the cross is unavoidable. God must really be angry with me. No, he recognized suffering as a part of God's call on his life. And we can't know what's coming, and whether that's good or bad. We can't know whether an endeavor, something, some decision that we're making, something we're going to try to do, we can't know if it's going to succeed or fail. Because people are not masters of their own fate. They can't make it happen if God has not given them to do it. All of us are subject to the sovereign plan and will of God. We can't predict who's going to have a pleasant life or a difficult one. We cannot judge someone as righteous or wicked based on the circumstances that come into their lives. That's how Swindoll makes his point here. He says, regardless of rank, status, color, creed, age, heritage, intelligence, or temperament, the hand of God is upon us. I had a teacher in the Bible Institute that I attended. His name was George Bailey. He had a wonderful life. He had a wonderful life. My old teacher, George Bailey, he told us about a time when he was in a service and people were giving testimonies, public testimonies, about how, it, uh, and, and one couple got up and said, since they came to know Christ, everything in their lives had become so much better and things were going so, so well. And then the next couple immediately after that followed and gave testimony of just the opposite. They came to Christ and everything got so much more difficult. So was one couple doing it right and the other couple was doing it wrong? 
it's God that assigns to us adversity and prosperity. And what makes it hard for us is that God doesn't give us briefings about his strategy. We get to know when it happens. So let me ask, does that make you anxious? Or does that instill faith in you, in our great God? When life is hard, it's him that has made it so. And so point number one, our lives and our futures are in his hands. Now secondly, point, point number two from verses two and three, our common fate in life includes physical death. Our common fate in life including physical death. Verse two, all have the same fate. And in this verse, the same fate here refers to the love or hate, the adversity or prosperity that Solomon was just talking about. All of us are going to get a mixture of these things in our lives. The one fate for the righteous and the wicked, and it says all, everyone experiences this fate. This, the word fate can mean event. NIV has the word destiny. For the righteous, the just, the lawful people, and the wicked. The word wicked here means morally wrong, the ungodly. And then he says the good or the clean and the unclean. The word good here is that word in Ecclesiastes that we've seen over and over again, often translated better, but translated other ways as well. It means more pleasant or more desirable. The good and the clean. Uh, in Greek, this word is, is the word that we get the word catharsis from. It means chemically or ceremonially pure here in the Hebrew. There's a cleansing there. On the other hand, you have the unclean, which means the foul, or the defiled, or the polluted. The, second, the next group are the one who offers a sacrifice, literally slaughters an animal, and for the one who does not sacrifice. In our terms, we might think of this more along the lives of, uh, lines of those who, who might live sacrificially under the sun. They're going to experience the same things as one who doesn't live sacrificially. The good man and the sinner. The good man, the one, the one who's pleasing in God's sight. And on the other hand is the sinner. The one who misses the mark. The offender. The one who is astray. And then in verse 2, the last of this, these sets is the swearer and the one who is afraid to swear. Interestingly enough, this Hebrew word for swearer has the word seven in it. It's actually from the same root word that we get Sabbath, which is the seventh day. Well, how do you explain that as being a, um, a swearer or an oath? Well, people would say uh, what it means is they bind themselves by seven things. Just talking about the uh, the weight of, a, a, of of an oath. And so the swearer, and one who is afraid or, or fears to do so. And so the swearing here is probably not referring to coarse language, although the Bible forgives that, forbids that also. This has more to do with foolish oaths before God. 
which, by the way, um, Solomon has already once referenced in Ecclesiastes. I think chapter 5 that might have been. But when we get to verse 3, we see the shared fate is death. The other shared fate is death. He says, this is an evil that is done under the sun. The word evil has the idea of sorrow or affliction. The evil that's been done or committed under the sun. That there is one fate for all men. There's a common thing that happens in the lives of all people. It's an event that happens in everybody's life. And Job bemoaned this fact. In Job 9.22, he says this, It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. All of people, all people die. Then he says, furthermore, the hearts of the sons or children of men are full, or this word can mean consecrated to do evil. And this is true of not only those who are still in their sin, because they haven't trusted Christ, but you're aware that you also still have a wicked heart, right? Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes 7.20, Solomon wrote, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So when he says there's insanity in their hearts throughout their lives, and you think to yourself, why do people do ridiculous, unthinkable things? Why are people so blind in their support, let's say, of the gender identity crowd, for example? Well, right here, Solomon says, because evil and madness and folly fill man's hearts. The other question is, then, why are we spared from having these same thoughts and actions? Because God is working in us a new heart. And yet we still do enough ridiculous, self-destructive things anyway, don't we? If the wicked saw good things come as a result of righteous acts, they may do right simply for the benefits, but that's not how life works under the sun. But we're rebels at hearts. We're rebels at heart. The only difference in our lives from those who are still openly opposing God is God's grace and mercy in our lives versus theirs. And he says afterwards, righteous, wicked, they go to the dead. Not only do the righteous and wicked share experiences in this life, but also death without exception. Afterwards, what follows, what pursues them is going to the dead that one event happens to all it has an effect on all Matthew Henry about this though idea of viewing life as an indicator of whether somebody is uh, good or wicked the length of one's wife if you or life if you study the king's of Israel's history, it reveals that some of the most wicked kings had the longest lives and reigns. For example, Manasseh, who is called one of the most wicked, reigned 55 years. On the other side, you had some of the 
godly kings die young. So if the same thing happens to both, some come to the wrong conclusion that how they live doesn't matter. If we understand that the world is in God's hands, that we have a date with death, that we all have a bit of insanity in our hearts, what should we do then? And where is our hope for in this life? Well, that brings me to point number three in verses four through six. The hope for an approved life has an expiration date. The hope for an approved life has an expiration date. Because in verse 4, Solomon says there's still hope in this life. He says whoever is joined, interestingly, the word joined in the um, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, is the word koinonia, fellowship. Whoever has fellowship with those who are alive can have the idea of being leagued with the flesh still on this earth. Somebody who's still alive physically. There's hope while this one is still alive. But this hope is only available to grasp while they are still alive. But aren't you glad that Solomon doesn't leave us without hope? There's a lot of hard things in Ecclesiastes, but he doesn't leave us without hope. Hope is the light that comes to the dark chamber of the things of this life. And for the Christians who have trusted Christ... We don't need to fear death, because death, which is called the last enemy, is already defeated, according to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writing to Corinth. And Peter calls our hope a living hope. Why does he call it a living hope? It's because we are trusting in Jesus, who is no longer in the grave, but is alive today. He's not dead anymore. He's not hanging on a cross still, a crucifix. He's alive And so no matter how good or bad the circumstances are in one's life, being alive is preferred to being dead under the sun. Because when there is life, there's still hope. But the wicked shouldn't grab on to false hope that things are going to magically get better. That's not the kind of hope that he's talking about. And if they die in that hope, they will be most miserable. As believers, we can be torn sometimes. We want to go home and be with the Lord, which is far better. But as Paul said, also wanting to stay here for the benefit of the church, or for us, our families. Um, We can be torn in that sometimes. And now the statement, though, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. What really helps to understand this is that in this illustration the dog isn't viewed as dogs are in our society where they are pampered our society sometimes treats pets better than people I'm not sure if you've noticed that or not here in Solomon's day dogs were unwanted scavengers who roamed the streets in packs they weren't pets who ate at our tables Uh, I'll never forget sitting uh, at lunch, uh, I guess it might have been dinner, um, with a a young lady from India at at a friend of mine's house who happened to have a black lab, by the way, labs being one of the sweetest breeds of dogs, and she was terrified of this dog because she was from India. And dogs in India 
were just like this, scavengers roaming the streets. They weren't pets. So with that, surely a live dog, something to be despised, is better than a dead lion. The lion, on the other hand, was considered noble. A predator, sure, but a noble, powerful predator. And so the idea here is the living, whether despised or honored, can have hope and look forward to things that may come. But the vilest person, like a a rabid dog, can still come to Jesus while they still have life in them. It's one of the reasons why we sang to God be the glory earlier. It has the lyric, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment of pardon from Jesus receives. Hallelujah. We're that wretch that God saved. The noblest person who dies without Christ, though, has no hope. Has no hope. And so in verse 5, we see that there is no hope once one has died. The word for here is an explanatory word. He's clarifying what he just said. Because the living know that they will die. They recognize, even though they may try to stuff it down, they understand it even though they, they try as best they can to ignore it. They know they will die, but the dead do not know anything. Literally, this word has the idea of not one speck. Or we might say, like, not one iota. They, know, they don't know anything. Now, this isn't teaching annihilation, that people cease to exist when they die. I'm not referring to soul sleep, where people lose consciousness until the judgment. It's a statement about their inability to know what's happening in this world after they die. The living still have a conscious hope. The dead do not. The living still have a capacity to enjoy life here. The dead no longer have that hope and pleasure. Our time to serve God and enjoy his gifts and earn rewards is limited to this life. Once we die, that opportunity dies. phrase that... that my wife and and others in her circle use frequently is opportunities with expiration dates. Well, any opportunity that we have to serve Christ has an expiration date. When we die, it's past us. So as we think about this, we might ask ourselves how this verse fits with Ecclesiastes 4.1 when Solomon uh, congratulated the dead more than the living. Remember I talked about going to a cemetery and saying, congratulations. We don't, we don't do that. But the, he, the idea was he congratulated the dead because now they're not suffering under oppression anymore. But there he was speaking about those who were greatly oppressed. And when you're under that position, that, that um, condition of being greatly depressed, there's often a tendency to think, hey, I'd be better off dead. So there's no contradiction here. The passage is handling the topic of life and death, the weighty topic of life and death, from different perspectives. And part of this whole idea of no hope once one has died, uh, Psalm 88.12 says this about God, Will your wonders be made known in the darkness, and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And that's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, is no. 
And in Job 14, verses 21 and 22, it says this about one who is in the grave. It says this, his sons achieve honor. This is somebody who's gone, right? They're in the grave. His sons achieve honor, but he doesn't know it. Or they become insignificant, but he does not perceive it. But his body pains him, and he mourns only for himself. There's no regard for his son and what's happening in his son's life in the grave. And then it says, Solomon says, they no longer have a reward. Uh, No longer means it's discontinued. The reward or the compensation benefit, this word can mean. And and that's because the earthly things that they earned and possess are going to be left to someone else. And only heavenly rewards, if they've earned them, will remain. And their memory is forgotten. Literally, this word means mislaid. There's no commemoration. People are oblivious to it. All that the wicked do to perpetuate their legacy, to try to, to lift up their name, make their name remembered, by and large, it fails. Solomon has repeatedly talked about the memory of the dead being forgotten. He did so in chapter 1. He did so in chapter 2. He repeats that theme. Isaiah 26, 14 says this, The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. God does that. So in verse 6 of Ecclesiastes 9, we see the time to respond rightly has already passed. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. The word indeed here indicates a corollary is coming. He's building on this. Their their love, their, their hate And again, this word is that word for intensified hate. It's exceeding hatred. And their zeal, their envy, or jealousy, it's already been destroyed. This word destroyed, it can have the idea of of wandered away. It's already away. It's gone. They will no longer share in all that is done under the sun. The word share here is the portion, their portion of what's been accomplished here. Their part of the inheritance was in this life. And once it's over, it becomes apparent that it was a waste all along to live for the things of here. We talked just a little while in our discipleship class this morning about the the tragedy of, of making what's here the most important thing. And if this is all we have here, that's tragic. It's tragic. Another tragedy is that there is no repentance in hell. Oh, maybe there is a change of mind, but certainly not a change of direction. There's still hope for our loved ones who don't know Jesus here in this world. But once they leave this world apart from him, that hope is gone. And so I ask, how might this affect our urgency to share the gospel with them? That's a searching question for all of us. Solomon, as he's rounding this out, he he says, our lives are in God's hands. We can't predict what is to come. This is the only time we have to live the life that God is giving to us. And how we live here 
it's going to affect how we live for all eternity. And that leads us to our last point. Enjoy life as God's gift to us. Enjoy life as God's gift to us. Instead of this, all of this thought, all of this musing leading to pessimism or or dark discontent, Solomon suggests that it should lead us to enjoy this life while we can. And so final point today from verses 7 through 9, you have God's approval to enjoy life. You have God's approval to enjoy life. Verse 7, enjoy your life knowing that you are accepted by God. There's a perspective change that happens between verses 6 and 7. And the perspective goes from being life under the sun, life that only takes into account what's happening here, to the eternal view of things. And it's signaled by this command in the imperative voice, go, go then. This word means walk, move forward, go on with life. Don't sit around and fret over a bunch of things that you can't understand or change. Rather, get up and live. Sure, death is coming, but don't let preoccupation with it rob you of all the good gifts that God gives now. Enjoy them. Since there's hope for the living, live. And so he says, eat your bread in happiness. Consume your meat with joy. Devour your food, not the food of others, your own food. What God has provided for you, eat it with pleasure. Live a life of rejoicing. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Uh, The word drink can mean imbibe, which would be just a simple drink of water you would have after the service today, or banquet, special times. Cheerful is the same word translated better or good. A cheerful heart. Heart is the center of who we are. At the center of who we are, there should be joy. Enjoy the things that God has given us for sustenance. And so we might ask the question, why can we be happy and enjoy ourselves despite all the chaos and all the things that that happen in this world that are wrong and annoying and inconvenient and really just evil. And he says, for God has already approved your works. This word already means now. At this time, he is pleased with you. He accepts your actions. He delights in your deeds. You already, right now, have his favor if you know his son, Jesus. Do you think it's possible for us to invent works that would be better than what he created for us to do as an output of our lives? No, our works are his works being worked out through us. We get to participate in that. What an amazing thing. Solomon is bringing us to another conclusion of thought, as he's done before. Uh, Similar to what he said in Ecclesiastes 2.24, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. 
In Ecclesiastes 8.15, he said, So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. He's telling us enjoy life. And so in verse 8, we see that we live out the approved life with joy. We get to live out the approved life with joy. He says, let your clothes be white all the time. Let your wardrobe be full of white things. White garments here is a figure for purity. Revelation 3, 4, to the church at Sardis. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That speaks of purity. You might remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, his garments turned white and we can share in that glory here believers can take great comfort knowing that we are robed in the righteousness of christ pure garments that's the the thought that pastor chris anderson is trying to communicate in his hymn his robes for mine which we'll close with today let your clothes be white all the time let not oil be lacking on your head Oil here is the olive oil that was used for ointment. And it's not lacking or wanting on our head. Psalm 23, verse 5, says of our great shepherd, you have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Our shepherd doesn't spare it. He dispenses oil liberally. And so some say this, this may refer to special occasions in the life of a Jew where they dressed in white and they were anointed with special perfumes. I think it has more of a spiritual bent than that. Because it doesn't mean that, that we're supposed to wear white clothes all the time and I'm somehow disobeying that command because I have a blue shirt on. No, they're supposed to do this always, but it's a figurative statement here. We might sum it up by saying we are to be spirit-filled and joyful as we live out our days, seeking to walk in purity, and we're to live joyfully always. And as Paul says, again I say, rejoice. The life of living joyfully in this world. And finally, in verse 9, we see that, that we're to live life as a reward from God. Live life as a reward from God. Again, enjoy life. Or as the King James Version translates this verse, it simply says, live joyfully. Live joyfully with the woman or the wife whom you love, the one that you have affection for, the one who you've partnered with in this life. Now, uh, if you're a woman, of course, this can be applied in the same way to your husband of your youth. But turn back to Proverbs chapter 5. Verses 15 through 19. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Remember, this is Solomon that's writing these words also, by the way. Proverbs 5, 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? 
question mark. Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now we see where this applies because he's not really talking about water. He's talking about drawing in from the fountain of the one who God has given you. In verse 19, as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Even in Eden, God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. So enjoy this life with a companion as God has gifted you. Now, ironically, Solomon doesn't say the wives of your youth. He says wife, perhaps reflecting upon and regretting some choices he had made in the past with his 1,000 women that were in his life. But he says, do this all the days of your fleeting life. Your companion shouldn't be the source of joy, but God is to be enjoyed with them. Don't get so hung up on the negatives, but fix your eyes on the amazing future we have. And by the way, along the way, enjoy the joys that God gives as glimpses into what is to come. And we can enjoy not just the meeting of our needs, certainly we can enjoy that, but also God gives us some of our wants as well. Some of the things that aren't necessary for us to live, but he graces us with those all the same. And we're to do this every day, meaning continually. Throughout this transitory life, uh, in Ecclesiastes 6.12, the, the few years of this futile life, in Ecclesiastes 7.15, he said, he said, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. In other words, that this life, while you have it, we know it's, it's going to go by quickly. The older you get, the faster it's going to get. It's transitory. But enjoy it while you can. Turn back to Psalm 37, verses 18 and 19. Psalm 37, verses 18 and 19. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. Why? Because they know that, that God knows the day of us if we're in his Son, and that, that our inheritance will be forever. So we enjoy things every day, continually, throughout this life, which God has gifted us or appointed for us under the sun. Every day is a gift from him. And he says, for this is your reward in life, your portion or your inheritance. One of the commentators, Jameson Fawcett and Brown, wrote this. The gloomy present should never be let to rob them of the festive joyousness of spirit, which faith gives. And he finishes with this statement, in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. This is a toil which you labored as a cognate. It's meant for emphasis. It's wearying effort, travail. There's even misery involved in this. Even as we go through all these difficulties, we're to enjoy it. And so Swindoll sums this up by saying this, throw yourself fully into all of life. Don't hold back. 
Don't save your strength. Don't put off living until you retire. Have a blast. Do it now. We're not to abuse this world, but we should abuse the things of this world for him and for his glory. And so are you enthusiastic about life? Or are you just kind of getting by? You know, one of the old names that people used to use to make fun of the NFL, the National Football League, is they used to call it the NFL, the no fun league. I don't know if you ever heard that before. Because they, they wouldn't let players celebrate and those kinds of things, so they would call it, well, it's the no fun league. Well, I think sometimes Christians feel like they, that we can't have fun. But we can. Nobody wants to go to the no fun church, right? But sometimes outside observers might wonder about Christians. God has gifted us with so many things, and he wants us to enjoy them, even as we look up with expectation for his return. Our joy should be so obvious and contagious that people are looking at Christians and trying to figure out why we're so joyful. And what's so different about you that you can rejoice even in the most difficult circumstances? And the answer is it's because we have the right perspective of this life. We understand that we already have God's favor and his approval frees us to live lives pleasing to him no matter what the circumstances. I can't help but wonder the impact we would have on this world if we were able to just do this, to live lives joyously knowing that we already have God's favor. And so just a couple quick points of life application as we close. Number one, do what God has told you to do in his word to prepare for death and a better life after death. The hope that we continue to have in this life is for our future. We're all going to die. We will all die, assuming the Lord doesn't return. But this life is to be used to prepare for death and eternal life where it counts the most. And secondly, rejoice in Jesus, who gave us this approved life. Because if you go back through the categories that we saw in, in our text today, we must realize that if not for Christ, we would have remained on the wrong side of the ledger in every one of those different categories. We wouldn't be righteous without Christ. We would still be the wicked. Without him, we wouldn't be good or clean. We would remain unclean, and that for eternity. We would never know how to show sacrificial love had Jesus not in agape love died for our sins on the cross and saved us. We wouldn't be described as good men and women. We'd continue to be classified as sinners. We owe anything good that we have to Jesus. And so rejoice in Jesus who gave this approved life. And then finally, point number three, life application point number three, stop trying to earn God's approval. Stop trying to earn God's approval. So many people get wrapped up in the approval of others. You'll hear people say things like, well, she doesn't approve of my lifestyle. Or, or I never had my father's approval. A Christian, believer, you don't need to worry about that when it comes to God. We don't have to live under a heavy weight of guilt. Jesus already paid for our sins. 
And God is not angry with us or looking at us with displeasure. He has approved us right now if we are in Christ. We have the Father's full favor for all time if we're robed in the righteousness of Christ. So live your life as approved of God with joy. How could we not? And don't misrepresent what you have in Christ by always being anxious and gloomy. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength today. Let's pray. Father, when we think about what we have in Christ, it should astound us. Sometimes familiarity with these things really goes against our amazement of them. But help us to reflect again and again what Jesus did for us, what our standing is. It's amazing to think that wretches like us could stand before the Father in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? What a joy it is to know our Savior. And I pray that joy would affect how we live. Lord, every one of us has things that come into our lives that bring us down, frustrate us, discourage us. Help us to look to you, Savior, and live lives of joy. Help us to be like Paul, who wrote a book, wrote a letter to the church at Philippi because he was afraid the Philippians weren't experiencing enough joy, and Paul writes it while he's in prison, chained to a Roman guard. That's the kind of grace that we need and the kind of help we need to live joyfully in this world. And Lord, I do pray for those who are yet in their sins. They still are in need of Christ. Their hope has an expiration date. And I pray that this week we would have urgency to share the gospel with those who need that message, Lord. There's no other message that saves. It's a message that we know. It's a message that we've believed. It's a message that they've, they need. And it's a message you've called us to share. That we would give the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world and make disciples. And help us to see our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, acquaintances, as walking dead men and walking dead women who need Jesus. And even as we do so, I pray that our joy in Jesus would be a catalyst for them to want to know you also. And I pray this in Jesus' name.